Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop, Living with Polycythemia Zera, and this is part one of a two-part series. And uh, today's program will focus on update on Polycythemia Zera. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and I really want to call out specifically to the MPN Education Foundation and the MPN Research Foundation for also being uh, collaborating on this call today. And it really is because of that collaboration and also your interest in this topic that we have on the call today over 358 participants. And you come from all over the United States, and we have international participants from Canada, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call, and we are uh, delighted that you're all on the call today and um, that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now, today's program was supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Insight, and I really want to thank them for supporting not only this program, but actually um, this whole two-part series, as well as our whole um, MPN series that we're doing as well. So I just want to thank them for their really um, ongoing support of, this, these, of both um, polycythemia vera and um, myeloproliferative neoplasms. Now, we have wonderful speakers today, and I want to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ruben Nessa, and Dr. Nessa is consultant hematologist, Mayo Clinic, Arizona, Chair, Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Deputy Director, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, Chair, Arizona Cancer Coalition, Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. And it's my pleasure now that Dr. Nessa will be addressing overview of polycythemia vera, or PD, staging and diagnosing, current standard of care, the important role of clinical trials, and talking with the healthcare team about your quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Nessa. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in today's cancer care discussion. Uh, and it was a great pleasure to be sharing the conference as well with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Verstavchik. So polycythemia vera. Polycythemia vera is a, a bone marrow disease that uh, has as its outcome the creation of too many red blood cells. That's really how the disease was first recognized well over a century ago. Over time, we've learned several things. We've learned that the bone marrow making the too many red cells is from a bone marrow problem, and we call that problem one of the myeloproliferative neoplasms, where the bone marrow is really making cells that it should not be making. And as a consequence, can increase not only the red cells, but can also increase the number of white blood cells as well as the number of platelets. Now, a condition like polycythemia vera is one that can affect people in a variety of ways. One, it can increase the risk of developing blood clots or bleeding, uh, and these can be in either the arteries or veins. So it can give risk of heart attack or stroke. It can give risk of blood clots in the legs or into the lungs. There can be risk of bleeding, either at the time of an injury or a surgery or uh, even spontaneously. Second, polycythemia can affect how we feel. It can give a variety of symptoms, such as fatigue. It can give when the counts are high difficulties with concentration or uh, headaches, migraines. Uh, it can give itching, uh, in particular sometimes set off by bathing or exposure to water. It's a disease that can have a risk of progressing to a more serious degree disease over time. It can progress either one, into a condition that we call myelofibrosis, or two, into acute myeloid leukemia. How do we diagnose the disease? Well, it's a disease that we diagnose based on, one, a suspicion. We have a suspicion that the red cells are increased. Two, we find that the increase in the red cells is not related to some other reason. We can have an increase in red cells sometimes as a reaction to uh, living at high altitude, to really needing more oxygen in our body. So smokers sometimes have an increase in their red cell count. People who are taking testosterone-like supplements can increase their red cell count. People who live at high altitude. 
So one, we try to make sure that it, there's not a secondary cause. Two, we know there are a variety of different genetic tests, particularly around a gene called JAK2 that is abnormal in the vast majority of patients with polycythemia vera. We also sometimes will perform a bone marrow biopsy to look for evidence of the bone marrow disease. Does the bone marrow look different? Does the bone marrow look consistent with the changes that doctors relate as being with polycythemia vera? So we diagnose the disease based on blood tests, based on the presence of these genetic tests, and sometimes as well as the bone marrow. So we could say an individual has, a, has polycythemia vera or that they do not. Now, does the disease have a stage? Well, unlike many cancers where we associate diseases such as breast cancer, lung cancer, melanoma as having very specific stages, one through four, that concept in blood diseases is a little different. And there are not stages of polycythemia vera, although, as I mentioned, the disease can progress to more advanced diseases such as myelofibrosis or acute leukemia. Although we don't have stages, we do think about issues such as risk, and risk being an assessment of risk of either developing a blood clot or bleeding event, risk of changing into myelofibrosis or to acute leukemia, or risk of the disease being life-threatening in and of itself. Several factors have been important in terms of determining risk, including age, elevation in the white blood cell count, as well as having had prior uh, events such as blood clots or bleeding. Individuals who are older that have those other two features are at higher risk. Individuals who are young have no symptoms and lack any of those features can uh, have a lower risk. Now, how do we treat the disease? Well, when a doctor visits with you, there's really an assessment of two things the risk of the disease, of all those things I mentioned, as well as what is the impact of the disease on you in terms of symptoms. Is there headaches? Uh, are there migraines? Uh, is there significant itching? Uh, are there other problems? Have you had a blood clot? Have you potentially had a blood clot that w went unrecognized? All of these are factors. Then after that assessment of risk, they come up with a plan for you. Now the plan begins and focuses first on very much the prevention of blood clots and bleeding. So first, we use an aspirin, most commonly a baby aspirin or 81 milligrams, which we use in the majority of patients with polycythemia vera, unless if they are allergic to aspirin, we may choose an alternative or if an individual is on a blood thinner such as Coumadin, we may well not use aspirin as well because their blood has already been thinned. Second, we try to control the hematocrit. The, and the hematocrit is the percent of our blood that is filled with the actual red blood cells themselves. You can think that our blood is about half cells, or, which are solids, and half water. The hematocrit is the percent of blood, if you were to spin a tube of blood down in a centrifuge, that percent of blood that is purely the red blood cells. In polycythemia vera, it's been found that it is important to keep that count under 45% in pretty much all patients and to try to keep that as a ceiling for the blood counts. In the past, we used to let people get up to 48, 49, 50. We've recognized over time that probably does not control that risk as well as we would like. So everyone aspirin, everyone control of the hematocrit. Now what about medications? Well, we've used selectively in the past medicines that lower the counts, in particular if they are a higher risk, if they have a lot of symptoms, if they've had prior blood clots, if they're older. So flipping it around, who are, do we not use medicines in? Primarily individuals who are younger, have no symptoms, and have had no obvious consequence of the disease. Our first line of treatment agreed upon uh, across the medical community is the medicine hydroxyurea. It's a tablet. It can lower the blood counts. 
We monitor it to make sure it does not lower the blood counts excessively. It's a medicine that patients certainly can feel well with, but there are individuals in which it does not have them feel as well as we would like. Difficulties with hydrea can include uh, an increased risk of skin cancers. It can include ulcers in the mouth or on the legs. Uh, and uh, rarely it can cause things such as fever, mild hair loss, or things of that nature. There are many patients who do very well on hydroxyurea, but there are some individuals who fail hydroxyurea. Currently approved for individuals that have failed hydroxyurea is the medication ruxolitinib. Ruxolitinib is an inhibitor of that protein I mentioned earlier called JAK2. The JAK2, you could say, is an on-off switch for the development of red cells in the blood. And it's an on-off switch stuck in the on position. It's as if somebody stuck it in the on position and then put a piece of duct tape over the uh, on-off switch so that it's stuck in the on position and is overdriving the production of red cells. Ruxolidinib was tested in clinical trials that both Dr. Rostovchik and I have participated in that showed in people that had failed hydroxyurea, the ruxolitinib was better than other treatments their doctors chose for improving symptoms, for shrinking the spleen if it was enlarged, the organ that is the filter for the blood, as well as decreasing the number of phlebotomies an individual needs when blood is taken off, as well as potentially having an impact on risk of blood clots. Now, as we think about advancing treatment of polycythemia vera, we're very mindful of clinical trials. We have a therapy such as ruxolitinib available in P. vera because of clinical trials where we said that hydroxyurea was helpful, but it was not universally helpful and people could fail it. And clinical trials with new agents exactly help us find better treatments. Clinical trials are very specific ways where we look at a group of individuals, typically with typical features of the disease, the disease being stubborn in a certain way or having failed the treatment, or sometimes a treatment at the very beginning after diagnosis, but where we compare two groups to try to further advance how we advance the treatment uh, of the disease further, and then try to share that data uh, across the country and across the world so that we can learn from one another and improve how we treat the diseases. When there is an appropriate clinical trial for your condition, it is an important consideration to see whether that's something you would like to participate in. On the plus side for clinical trials is you may be able to try a therapy you would not have been able to try otherwise. There is a learning benefit to society as a whole uh, in that that may help to uh, guide and help other P. vera patients in the future. What are the negatives? Well, some clinical trials will be requiring individuals to travel back to a center that enrolled them on the study at some frequency. So there can be a hassle factor that can be, for some individuals, uh, a drawback. For others, less so. Clinical trials are never a fixed-in-stone obligation. So if one enrolls in a clinical trial, one always has complete control over their own health care uh, and is always able to uh, come off of a clinical trial if it is their choice. But I certainly encourage everyone to consider clinical trials when they are appropriate for your situation and if they fit with both your goals and the realities around your health care. Now, finally, I would say that with polycythemia vera, we have learned quite a bit. We've learned that in many ways this is a chronic illness. As I described for my patients with polycythemia vera, you know, managing a disease like polycythemia vera is like managing other chronic illnesses we can experience, diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or others. Now, it's a different type of disease, but the issues can kind of be the same. We can have it for many years. For some, they'll live out the rest of their lives managing the disease, controlling the disease, and end up passing away of some other condition. In others, the disease can worsen 
and can become life-threatening in and of itself. But it is a long journey with a disease like this, and having it in balance, understanding it, and managing it is a key part. With that, we have learned that symptoms related to polycythemia vera is an important aspect of the disease. I visited someone just this very morning with polycythemia vera, who on the one hand, the therapy had normalized the blood counts and the individual uh, had not had any blood clots or bleeding. So on the one hand, we were achieving part of our goal. However, the individual had inadequate control of their symptoms. There was too much itching, too much fatigue, as well as there were side effects from the therapy that they were on with difficulties with uh, achiness and other difficulties. So as a healthcare provider, I really want to try to achieve both things. Are you on the right therapy? Is it achieving our goal? But is it also achieving our goal in terms of how you feel as well as control of side effects? So I think we've made great advances in polycythemia vera, but I think we have many opportunities for further improvement of our options as well. And with that, close this section and then hand it over to my colleague, Dr. Versovchik, who will be looking at new treatment approaches as well. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Nessa. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful overview of the, um, of the call, of the program, and lots of information for everybody to, to understand, to better understand polycythemia there. And our next speaker is Dr. Serdan Vistovzek, and Dr. Vistovzek is Professor of Medicine, Director Hans A. Pilon's Clinical Research Center for Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, Department of Leukemia, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Vistovzek is going to address new treatment approaches, working with your healthcare team to manage late-stage PD symptoms, manage, reduce potential complications, and identify what symptoms should prompt you or your caregiver to call the office. So it's now my pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Vistovzek. Uh, it's a great pleasure to join you, and thank you very much for the opportunity to participate. And happy to be on call with a good friend and colleague, Dr. Mesa, and to extend his uh, nice uh, description of polycythemia vera and uh, disease characteristics and therapeutic approaches and managing the everyday life of patients with PV. Let me add uh, more on the development of new treatments because, uh, as uh, Ruben has said, we do have effective therapies. We consider hydroxyurea here in the United States as a first-line therapy to control patients that need the cytoreductive therapy that is the therapy to control the blood cell count and symptoms. And it works in majority of the patients. And we have now approved the therapy in terms of a second line, which is a ruxolitinib, a JAK inhibitor, to help patients that don't do well on hydroxyurea. But we need more and better therapies that perhaps may provide additional benefits. And we are experiencing Apart from these medications, the development of another group of uh, medications which are called long-acting interferons. Interferon is a biological medication that is given under the skin. It has been around for decades, and it's usually given as injection three or five times a week, and it can alter the bone marrow production of the cells, and it's useful in not just the polycythemia vera, but some other chronic bone marrow conditions like chronic myeloid leukemia in the past or ET or similar conditions. And uh, it's able to alter the bone marrow uh, even for uh, improvements in the how bone marrow look like and decrease the number of malignant cells. But it has many side effects along the way, flu-type symptoms and achiness and perhaps some depression or hair loss. And new preparations that are given less frequently once a week or even every other week are being tested in clinical studies. Some of them are available uh, for prescribing uh, for other conditions uh, like hepatitis. With these new approaches, with the long-acting interference, we see advances made in the field uh, for patients that do not tolerate standard therapies. Uh, the patients uh, can actually control the blood cell count, improve the symptoms, and decrease the uh, complications uh, with the long-acting interference, and we hope to have more than uh, 
just a few medications available in the near future for patients with PV as approved therapies so that we have choices and uh, choose based on patient's characteristics which one to give. With the JAK inhibitors that were mentioned, uh, the ruxolitinib, we have made major strides because with this medication we tackle the underlying biological problem of uh, olecetemia vera cells. This is uh, a signaling inside these cells in the bone marrow that lead cells to grow without control. Uh, this is the JAK-dependent uh, signaling, and we inhibit the JAK protein, so it's kind of a targeted therapy in a way, biologically you know, uh, targeting the abnormality, and we are extending this now to using more of the biological rather than chemicals as a therapies for patients with PV with long-acting interference. Now, apart from the therapy, certainly there are other approaches to improving the quality of life, uh, decrease complications, uh, and make uh, life uh, uh, longer even uh, with the overall understanding of what the disease does and uh, engaging with, uh, with the healthcare team uh, and not to just uh, be a passerby. I think it's important to understand that for overall best outcome of patients with polycythemia vera, all aspects of the healthcare team be, need to be combined together and participation of the patients in their uh, t uh, management is important. As uh, Ruben said, it's important to understand what the disease is all about. It's a chronic condition. We don't have medications to eliminate the condition, so it needs to be understood what does it mean, what are the risks that come along with that. And therefore, if we talk about the conditions, problems, I usually separate those uh, in relationship to too many cells in blood. These are circulatory problems, so circulation is impaired with too many cells there, so clotting and bleeding can happen either in big vessels or small vessels. That can lead sometimes to major problems that need to be recognized and uh, may lead patients to call provider uh, quickly. If the clotting, for example, blood clot happens in the, uh, in the lungs, in, in the vessels of the lungs, patient would become acutely very short of breath, uh, gasping for air with perhaps some uh, chest pain, and this is... Uh, so-called pulmonary embolism, and that needs to be recognized. The patient needs to call for help. Or there might be acute uh, abdominal pain that lasts and uh, is excruciating, may come from uh, a bleeding in, uh, in, the, in the spleen or perhaps a clot in the blood vessels in the, in the belly. The same can happen in, in the leg, in the calf, when there is an acute problem with the blood the circulation. There is a distension, obviously, of the leg, which is painful, and, and patients cannot walk, and these type of clotting issues or bleeding issues need to be recognized, and these uh, may lead patients to call uh, their provider sooner. But these are relatively rare uh, to improve other symptoms that come from inflammation, for example. This would be itching, pruritis, night sweating, low-grade fevers, or uh, uh, similar. One would like to improve their body condition overall, engage in physical activity, uh, try to uh, alter the uh, other medical conditions that may uh, exist in a patient at the same time, therefore control uh, if high blood pressure is present or control diabetes, obesity needs to be controlled, stop smoking, decreasing other medical reasons that would increase the risk of blood clotting certainly helps in overall management of the patients and, and long-term outcome. So it is not only about taking a medication or listening to what the doctor says, but it's participation of the patient uh, along the uh, lines that I outlined that is important for overall success. Uh, I think that uh, the educational efforts that we are witnessing as we are engaged today in this conference are in place for uh, patients to either listen to teleconferences or engage online through uh, patient advocacy groups and connect among themselves to bring about the improvements in the overall field of polycythemia vera. The uh, doctors certainly are connected together in efforts to improve the delivery of the medications and make strides in identifying patients that have PV 
of note, for example, is that the diagnostic criteria for polycythemia vera is being changed this year to be better uh, in uh, identifying patients with PV and uh, for us to therefore be able to intervene earlier on in management of symptoms and signs of the disease beyond just providing a new medications. So identification of the patients, engagement with the patients, managing, management of the blood counts, inflammatory symptoms, that is quality of life concerns of the patients, uh, and then medications. These are all aspects that we as a team, including the patients, are working on all together. And uh, with that, I would uh, uh, let uh, Carolyn Messner take over for a part three of the today's uh, presentation. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Vesovac. That was excellent and really outstanding and very informative and really also a call out to all of our participants in terms of their being on a call like this today and really getting more information um, to help them um, under, better understand be knowledgeable about, their, about, about um, polycythemia vera. So that's really excellent. Thank you. And I know there'll be questions during the Q&A for you as well. I do want to say a few words just about services that are available to everybody on the call today that are free in addition to this workshop. Um, I'm, uh, Cancer Care is a, uh, a national free um, organization that provides services at no cost to, to people who call us. Um, and what are the services? So we do provide practical and financial assistance to people. Those can be very challenging um, in dealing with illness, problems around transportation or care at home or with treatment costs. Those are all very challenging to everybody on the call today. Um, in addition, we also offer a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers here. Um, they're all master's level trained oncology social workers, and they provide a chance just to talk to them. We call that counseling services. They're really a chance to talk to someone who listens to your concerns and actually can help you to kind of troubleshoot what your concerns might be and how to get um, solutions to some of your problems and concerns. We also offer support groups, which are very important to many people. Many people really appreciate being a part of a support group, either a telephone support group um, so there's no travel involved, or an online support group, which really you can post day or night. And for our online support groups, we often have people both in the United States and internationally participating. Telephone groups tend to be at a specific time, so people actually often are in the United States who participate in those. But again, those groups are open to people who might find being in a group atmosphere very helpful. Um, in addition, we do have many of these types of workshops that we offer, as well as publications and fact sheets and informational pieces that you all might find very useful. And so to access our services, you can either call us at 1-800-813-4673, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And all that information is available to you when you registered, as well as you'll get that information as well. Um, when you, um, we send you information about the evaluation of the phase program and also just follow up with all of you so you'll have that information again. So with that being covered, I'd now like to actually um, have a chance for us to, for all of you to ask questions of our speakers. We have great speakers today. And so I'm going to ask Andrea to bring all of the speakers on board. And if Andrea, you would actually please um, explain to the audience how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And again, before the call ends today, I will, if we don't get to your question or you think of a question at a future time, I'll give you information about how to access questions going forward in terms of getting the answers you need. So um, Andrea, if you could please explain to the audience how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by ask, clicking ask a question. And our first question comes on the line of Chris D. Your line is open. Hi, yes, thank you very much. Um, I have had uh, polycythemia vera since 2012, and I'm 64 years old. Um, I just wondered how do they set the um, amount for the crit to be flebbed? Mine is 45, which is what the doctor um, suggested. But I noticed that at 43, I start getting very, very ill, and I end up throwing up violent headaches, and I either end up in the hospital or going down to the cancer center early. Is there a way that I can share 
um, more profoundly with the doctors um, to kind of drop my crit, or is that something that's set in stone? Thank you, Christy. That's an excellent question. I'm going to ask both of our speakers to address that. Why don't Dr. Messer, do you want to start, and then Dr. Dostovzak? Sure. So, so what I would say is I think we have a, a, a good understanding of what the ceiling of the hematocrit should be, but we don't have, you know, a, a minimum threshold, uh, meaning that there are individuals who might feel better at less than 45. Uh, and uh, in women in the past, uh, the number commonly used has been 42. Uh, that was based on... On a, on a model as opposed to a clinical trial is kind of a theoretical model. But, but suffice it to say, we clearly recognize there are people who feel better under 45, you know, and I think that's a discussion clearly for you to raise with, with your doctor in that there are even individuals who might feel best if they're at 40. So I'd say 45 is the top, but clearly there are, you know, individuals who will feel better at a little lower value you know, and I think it's just a good open discussion between yourself and your doctor and that there's no, there's no medical test that is going to say really other than how you feel what number is best below that 45. Dr. Vistovic, do you want to add to the whole communication? Yeah, I absolutely agree with Ruben. I mean, the 45 has been proven as a target, and we know that patients that do not have a good control of hematocrit and their it's above 45. They have more uh, episodes of blood clotting and complications and, and so on. So that is proven. But below 45, uh, I agree with Ruben, we go by a need to have it even lower. If the patient feels better with the lower numbers, and then we lower the threshold. 42 would be fine. As long as uh, we achieve the goal to control not just the numbers, but also the improvement and control of the quality of life by controlling the symptoms. Excellent. And so we are encouraging then participants on the call to really have that open dialogue with your healthcare provider. Um, and so, Christy, you really raise, it's a wonderful first question because it really, it really is the question that, uh, the whole concept of this team, um, I guess uh, Dr. Nasser and Dr. Vistelbeck, could you, do you want to comment on just the, who is the healthcare team? Because the patient is such an, and the family is such an important part of that team as well in terms of bringing these questions to them. But. So I, I would say you, clearly the team is, is different in every individual. You know, I'd say that, that from the healthcare side, the team includes many individuals. It includes clearly your, your physician, uh, there may well be uh, an advanced practitioner, such as a nurse practitioner or PA, that are in support of the practice that, that assist in that regard, usually under the, the clear direction of the physician. Uh, there can be a nurse uh, involved that is involved in everything from refilling your prescriptions to being a contact person if you're having side effects or symptoms to the individual that orders your phlebotomies or, uh, or helps your ruxolitinib get approved if you're on that line of therapy. Uh, there may be even uh, a, uh, a secretary in support of the practice that, again, helps with, with logistics, paperwork, visits, things of that nature. From the patient side, I'd say that it clearly is variable, but it really is best as a team. You know, chronic disease such as polycythemia vera People may have less of what we consider. In the rest of oncology, there's the issue of kind of the caregiver. You know, if there's an individual who, you know, is very ill and needs someone to really help with even, you know, kind of basic activities. In PVR, I think that degree of help is less of a need, but there is the need to really have someone who is support, somebody to bounce things off of, sometimes an individual to come to visits with you to, to help kind of remember what's been discussed, sometimes the person to, you know, remember your questions and help raise them at the time of, of that visit. Uh, I think broader as well, your friends, your family members, people who really care about you, again, some of them are, are sometimes confused a bit by polycythemia vera. You know, it may be an illness that you're the only individual they know that's afflicted by that. 
and trying to wrap your head around what are the expectations in polycythemia vera might be very different than in some other illnesses. So it's clearly a team, and it's clearly a team with both part that's at your medical center, but also part that's really in your circle of family and friends. And Dr. Yeah. So I think we are aware that the communication is the key. And it is also known that the projection uh, of the quality of life uh, in the discussions with the doctors, either because of a lack of uh, understanding the quality of life in malproliferative neoplasms in particular, as we talk about PV, is affected quite a bit by the presence of the disease and, of course, if it's uncontrolled to a great extent, that the communication about the quality of life issues has been poor in the past. And I think that here we have evidence particularly uh, led by Dr. Mesa, in identifying these aspects of uh, uncontrolled uh, symptoms that are related to the disease activity in patients with PV in particular, that uh, we now have a mode of uh, communication, and I hope more doctors will engage in that, where there are questionnaires for patients that can be filled as a part of a routine even clinical visit by the patients with MPN to project their quality of life for doctors to be fully aware and not just uh, shortly, uh, uh, not just ask questions in short manner, but to have a documentation of the quality of life of the patients and judge their therapeutic decision-making, not just on the blood cell count, but also on the proper documentations of, uh, of these answers to uh, the questions. And Ruben led uh, uh, this effort to amazing level in MPN here for us to, to improve our practice. And this is what we are talking about. It's the communication is a team effort, and uh, we are getting better. But certainly, in that particular case that we, uh, we were presented with, it, that there is a need for improvement. Excellent. Thank you. It's really important. And, um, we have another question from one of our online participants, which is a two-part series. So from Leia, the first part is, how does myelofibrosis differ from polycythemia vera? Um, Dr. Um, Nessa, could you address that question? Sure. So myelofibrosis is, is a, a stage of myeloproliferative neoplasm, and it really includes two different sets of individuals. One, a group of individuals in which that's the first illness we found, that what we call primary myelofibrosis. It's an illness that can have enlargement of the spleen to a, a much greater degree than an ET or P. vera, there can be anemia. There can be symptoms like there are in PV, but the symptoms can be a little different. They can include not only fatigue, but it tends to be worse. But there can be unexpected weight loss. There can be fevers. There can be bone pain. There can be difficulties that, again, are a bit different than the P. vera phase of the disease. The myelofibrosis phase of the disease is more threatening uh, and can be a life-threatening change. The other group of individuals with myelofibrosis are those that evolved from polycythemia vera or from the cousin disease of essential thrombocythemia. Now, you could think that polycythemia vera exists on a spectrum, and its natural progression is into myelofibrosis. Now, it's a progression that sometimes takes, on average, 10 years or more, and in some individuals, they'll never end up changing. In fact, probably the majority of individuals who are diagnosed with polycythemia vera will not change. But over time, in individuals who do change from PV to myelofibrosis, there are several things we notice. One, the pattern of the blood counts do change. We see that the initial increase in the red blood cells, over time that decreases. People may no longer need phlebotomies. They may actually have anemia. They may not need medications to control the counts. That overproduction really diminishes. Next, we tend to see that the spleen clearly enlarges, uh, and sometimes to a significant degree. We might see that the pattern of the symptoms change and start to include issues such as weight loss where they were not present earlier. We can even see other changes in the blood counts themselves with the white blood cells or other things that we can see in the blood. So it can change, but there's no guarantee 
that it will, but it is clearly something that uh, is important that we monitor for and that we do uh, tend to approach the treatment of myelofibrosis different than we will polycythemia vera. <coughs> To, just to add a, a word or two, uh, I think that uh, uh, many patients uh, with polycythemia vera that I see here in a referral um, in Houston are uh, worried about the transformation to myelofibrosis from polycythemia vera. And uh, to voice, uh, again, what Ruben said, that majority of PV patients do not change. And if there is a bone marrow that is done, uh, as people live with polycythemia vera, they change the doctors, and maybe another doctor will say, well, why don't we do the bone marrow biopsy? And the bone marrow biopsy reveals some degree of fibers there, a scar tissue. That does not mean on its own, without all the other changes that uh, Dr. Messer uh, pointed out, that there is a transformation to myofibrosis. Just the presence of fibers doesn't cut it. Now, the change from PV to post-polycythemia vera fibrosis also takes time, as, as it was presented nicely. It's, it's a spectrum of PV, but there is also a, a transition period that we talk about it, and people acquire those changes over time. And we see patients in transition. That may take years, and we follow the patients and see how things develop. So it's not something that happens overnight and that uh, the scope of life needs to be changed overnight because there is such a tremendous change. It's a process on its own. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you for those questions, Leah. And um, the next question um, from one of our online participants, Shelley. I was diagnosed with PV in 2005. Within the past month, I have been suffering from extreme bone pain. I need to know what helps to ease the pain. Do a lot of PV patients have issues with inflammation in the lower extremities and enlarged lymph nodes with high counts of magus proteins, or should this be concerning? Dr. Vistovzak, could you address that question? Yes, absolutely. The systemic symptoms that come with polycythemia vera can include the bone pain, and uh, the enlargement of the lymph nodes is rather unusual, but it can be seen if there is also enlargement of the spleen. And one would like to examine and investigate this particular development a little bit more in detail because it's uh, on its own. If they, we are talking only about enlargement of the lymph nodes, relatively unusual. Uh, for systemic control of the symptoms, we would usually implement cytoreductive therapy if the blood cell count is not controlled very well. Uh, even in patients who otherwise have a low risk of uh, blood clotting, as we said, the introduction of the medications beyond the baby aspirin is usually based on a judgment whether a patient has a high risk of blood clotting, and this is in patients who are older than 60 or, or have a history of blood clot. But if the systemic symptoms are such uh, that uh, there is no help from painkillers or other supportive care measurements, then it's reasonable to introduce a cytoreductive therapist to control that aspect of the disease on its own. And if uh, the initial therapy does not help, hydroxyurea, as we said, would be usually the first-line therapy. The uh, ruxolitinib, the JAK2 inhibitor, then certainly has a huge potential to help in controlling the symptoms uh, as it has been shown in the studies that Dr. Mesa mentioned where uh, the benefit of the ruxolitinib versus other conventional therapies were on aspects uh, from the control of the enlarged organs, the spleen, to control of the blood cell count, but in particular, and this is important for a group of patients that I see here, which are referred to us because they don't do well on standard therapy, and this is control of the systemic symptoms. Uh, this is anti-inflammatory as is anti-proliferative medications and improves the systemic control of the symptoms very well. But again, the, it's hard to advise um, without seeing patients, and I would certainly advise seeking uh, further evaluation of your particular situation for what you're suffering from. Thank you very much. And so, Shelley, we definitely would recommend that you take this information back to treating healthcare team and 
take this information and really discuss it with them in detail. But I hope this has been helpful. Um, and um, there's another question from one of our online participants. Um, from Alan, do you recommend a certain diet or exercise for people living with polycythemia vera? Um, so ask Dr. Dostovic um, if you want to address that. I think that uh, uh, understanding that uh, the disease comes with increased risk of thrombosis certainly uh, emphasizes uh, a need to control other medical problems and prevent them from happening that would increase that risk of thrombosis, like high blood pressure, cardiovascular problems in general, eliminate smoking, lose weight, and get in shape. That is the usual message for everybody, I would say, including us doctors, but for patients with polycythemia vera, certainly uh, that is a valuable advice because it does help to have a good quality of life and prevent things from happening in patients with polycythemia vera. In terms of diet, one aspect that is important uh, that uh, sometimes is perhaps not easy to understand, um, and that is that people with polycythemia vera become iron deficient because iron is like a food for red blood cells, and with the phlebotomy, the bloodletting, and with medications that are used, people with polycythemia vera become iron deficient uh, because the red blood cells use uh, that iron. And if you give iron to patients with polycythemia vera, that will make those red blood cells grow faster. So just because the iron deficiency is present, we do not uh, ask people to be replacing that iron by pills or IV infusions. Of course, there are certain exceptions to that if iron deficiency causes symptoms, but which is relatively rare. Otherwise, certain herbal preparations or supplements or megavitamins have not been proven to help uh, with the disease process in polycythemia vera. And another question, um, is hydrea safer than other agents? Um, Dr. Nessa, do you want to address that? Sure. Well, one, I would say that when we think about the treatments that we have, we do have to be mindful that people react to different drugs differently. You know, and with any of the drugs that we consider in polycythemia vera, of which the most common would be hydroxyurea, ruxolinib, and interferon, you know, there are individuals with any one of those that I could point to that have done extremely well, and others that even on low doses have felt very poorly. You know, so we clearly need to be mindful of, of an individual and how the drug interacts with them. We sometimes are also mindful in terms of other, uh, other health issues, other medications, interactions, and things of that nature. In terms of hydroxyurea, hydroxyurea for many patients is a very safe and well-tolerated drug uh, and sometimes gets a bit more maligned, you know, as, uh, as a type of a chemotherapy drug. Uh, there are individuals that have taken hydroxyurea for decades and have done very well on it. Over time, there are some risks, but I would not say the risks are overwhelming, but they are a consideration along with other factors. It is a medication that clearly can increase the risk of skin cancers. That's probably an under-recognized appreciation. Uh, it's not uh, at a dramatic level, but if somebody has a high risk of those or already has had skin cancers, that's a factor. There's a lot of concern and discussion in the Internet, does hydroxyurea increase the risk of acute leukemia in polycythemia vera? I'd say that the jury is still out on this but that if there is an impact, it probably is a very minimal one. I can't say that it's zero, but I can't say that it's a strong driver either. Patients with P. vera have at least some risk of changing to acute leukemia. Does that increase with the medication? Studies from Italy would tend to suggest that patients that have only had hydroxyurea don't necessarily progress to acute leukemia at any faster rate than those who who uh, did not receive hydroxyurea. So I'd say, as I share with my patients, I can't say that there's zero risk, uh, but I can say that for some individuals, the risk of the hydrea is much smaller than the risk of having a blood clot or bleeding event with the polycythemia vera. So in some individuals, yeah, it, is, uh, it is a trade-off, but sometimes it is a very favorable trade-off.
Excellent. Thank you. And um, actually, a follow-up to that question just came in from Maria in terms of, so um, how do I reduce the risk of developing skin cancers? Um, and Dr. Vistovzak, could you address that question? Just anything that people can do to reduce the risk or actually or early detection, any kinds of things that you could recommend? Yes, that's a very good question because of what we just were talking about, that there might be some and uh, an underappreciated risk of uh, developing those skin cancers on hydroxyurea. Now, these uh, is not very common, first of all. We should be uh, more realistic saying that it's not given. And whenever there is a list of potential side effects, that doesn't mean that this will happen. And it is rare overall to see development of the skin cancer, but it has been recognized as something that is perhaps somewhat a little bit more common than otherwise in this group of patients. So if uh, there is a potential for alternative therapy, if the interferon is a possibility over hydroxyurea, and there is a worry that hydroxyurea would increase the risk of developing of a skin cancer, for example, in a patient who already has one, as Ruben mentioned, then perhaps the consideration should be given to use interferon over the hydroxyurea. If the patient develops a skin cancer on hydroxyurea, perhaps further therapy with hydroxyurea should be avoided to eliminate potentially offending factor in that uh, patient's situation and look at uh, uh, other therapies like, again, interferon or uh, ruxolitinib. Uh, with each of uh, the potential side effects, one needs to balance the risk and benefits. And as Dr. Messer mentioned, the efficacy of hydroxyurea as a first-line therapy is very high. It's very well tolerated for a long time, and one can actually give it for decades, which does not appear to be the case with interferon because of in intolerance issues after five or seven years. Half of the patients usually are already off. And that needs to be also taken into account. So there is no real resolution to that, but for each individual person who has to weight the risk and benefits relative to a particular problem and their own situation, the optimal approach should be taken. Thank you. And do patients often, are there usually dermatologists in the, in the clinic so a patient could have an appointment for help with just I don't know, skin, uh, skin prevention or early detection um, efforts in, in, that, in those situations, or is that part of the care? Uh, in my practice, usually we do not have a proactive uh, yearly referral to the skin doctor for uh, examining the skin. Uh, rather, this is something that is relatively rare, and then if it's noted that there is some kind of a ch skin change, then we act upon it. Okay. Um, and another question we have from one of our online participants um, is um, what side effects can I expect from interferon? Um, Dr. Vestoza, could you address this? Yes. Uh, so interferon is a biological therapy, and in our body it's produced, particularly when we have some kind of inflammation or uh, infection, and, and it is usually said that when we have that bone aches and pains, low-grade fevers, don't feel well, we feel yucky, that is usually associated with the interferon. And this is what happens when you give interferon as an injection, flu-type symptoms in, either, in one way or the other. Um, and it's not going to be present in everybody again. Um, there are some measures to take to decrease the impact if that happens on the patients. Uh, we would advise patients, for example, to take a Tylenol, perhaps a half an hour, an hour before injection, and maybe even one after injection, one hour later, or take injection at uh, Friday night. So if there are any uh, issues, uh, then people go to sleep, don't feel it, or if the next day they feel some side effects, then it's a, it's a weekend. But adjusting the dose and schedule certainly matters, and it's not that we would uh, advise taking medication if it causes harm, 
there are ways to uh, counteract those. Uh, but one needs to understand it's not given that this will happen. There are other issues that can happen long term in terms of uh, some autoimmune problems. So we typically would check uh, thyroid function test every 6 to 12 months. Perhaps there are some uh, issues with developing depression. And if that happens, we would stop interferon. And interferon is contraindicated in patients with the depression, for example. Uh, interferon has been around for decades and used in so many different conditions, not just in TV or malproliferative neoplasms. And a lot of different things have been described in the patients on this therapy. So the list of possibilities that what can happen is large, but overall, uh, again, each item that is usually on the list is not free, very frequent apart from flu-type symptoms. So that needs to be understood with any other medication to the same degree. It's, it is valuable, and it should be tried if it's, if it's needed, and not to decline the medication that is potentially valuable just because something may or may happen without us knowing whether it actually will. Thank you very much. Excellent. And um, last late-breaking question um, uh, from Eleanor. Can you discuss post-polycythemic myeloid metaplasia further? Dr. Messel, can, can you address this? So that would be another synonym for what I described as the myelofibrosis that individuals progressed from polycythemia vera. So what I would suffice to say is that, one, it's a change that only occurs in, uh, in a minority of individuals. And I think what the likelihood of someone changing depends on a few things, but really the time with the disease is a factor. So, you know, if I see a very young patient with P. vera, it, it is a greater lifetime concern clearly than if I see a patient who is much older. Now, two, I would say that clinically, the features of the disease are very similar after people are diagnosed to individuals with other types of myelofibrosis, such as primary myelofibrosis. So we do not typically treat the disease in a very different way than we might others with myelofibrosis. So as Dr. Verstavchik and I have many trials for patients with myelofibrosis, they typically do not discriminate between those with post-PV myelofibrosis or those with primary myelofibrosis. What I would say as a word of hope is that the research that's being done in these diseases as a whole likely will help people in anywhere where they stand within this spectrum. Research that's done in myelofibrosis may benefit those clearly with either primary or post-PV myelofibrosis but likely will evolve to help patients who have polycythemia vera as well. So although we put up different, let's say, parameters uh, around these diseases uh, in terms of the groups that we consider for a therapy or a clinical trial, it is a, a, a broader group of individuals within a family of diseases that we clearly think that learning from one will help other patients. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been really, Dr. Nessa, Dr. Stubbeck, you've been extraordinary. This has been an amazing uh, conference call and education workshop, and I really want to thank all of you for being on the call, and I particularly want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank all of our participants who really asked us really great questions, both on the phone and online, and I do recognize that you may have many questions that go beyond beyond the scope of one-hour program. So I want to remind all of you um, how you can get answers to your questions um, that you may not have been able to ask during the call itself and maybe other questions that you think of. So for any medical questions that you may have, I would very much recommend that you call the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. Again, 1-800-422-6237. And of course, we do recommend that you contact your healthcare team as well. But if you're trying to get some additional information, that is a very excellent uh, place to go to for information in general. The information specialists often await after our calls. They're waiting, expecting our, our calls from many of you on, the, on these uh, programs that we run. If you have a question, however, about accessing services from cancer care, either our practical and financial assistance or our counseling services, 
or our workshops or publications or just want to get more information about what we, how we can help you, and again, those services are free, you can simply call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. And our oncology social workers are here to help you with your questions and concerns. And for those of you who prefer to go visit our website at www.cancercare.org, and again, there's a chance for you to post your questions or concerns on our website as well. Most importantly, as we conclude today, I don't want anyone to think that you're alone in coping with polycythemia vera, with cancer, with any hematologic cancer. I want you to know that you're now part of this cancer care community. And the cancer care community for this particular program also includes both the MPN uh, Education Foundation and the MPN Research Foundation. And they're both actually wonderful resources for you as well. But we don't want anyone to think that you're alone. And often, often during a day, sometimes you can feel probably alone with a concern or question you may have. You do, of course, have your healthcare team, and I think we've talked about how important they are to you. But you also can contact Cancer Care and other organizations for support. Um, that's very important. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. I do want to remind you that there is a part two to this program. And a part two actually is occurring on April 11th. And on April 11th, that this program is focusing on coping with the stress of caregiving when your loved one has polycythemia vera. But it's also for participants, people who are living with polycythemia as well. I think you'll find it a very helpful workshop as well. And some of you have signed up for it already, but if you haven't, please do. And again, thank you all, and I want to wish you a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.